inside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Well, hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother J.S. to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yes, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate those high seas of life. Today, we introduce Trial of the Century 15. Well, yeah, that's because it was the trial of the century, and it is a long story. The subtitle of this ought to be Breaking Precedent. I will hang those two bastards. And we return to the trial of Leopold and Loeb, where the stakes were, as in an all-in bet, without doubt, either life or death. And Bobby Franks, if you recall, had been brutally murdered and the prosecution, led by Robert Crow, were in ruthless pursuit of burying these two boys, but only after they had been first hanged to the death by the state of Illinois. And it's worth noting that in the 10-year period predating this trial of Leopold Loeb, in Chicago, there have been 450 murder cases in which a defendant charged with murder had pled guilty to a murder charge. Yet in only one of those 450 murder cases had the defendant who had pleaded guilty subsequently been hanged. One in 450. And that single condemned man had been 40 years of age when he was hanged. Furthermore, in Chicago, no minor had ever been hanged after a guilty plea. Not one. And as a state attorney in this case, Robert Crow was seeking to break all precedent with Leopold and Loeb. It, yes, it was a hideous crime. There was no argument there. But who was the sitting judge on that one single capital punishment case where the death by hanging order had been carried out after a guilty plea? None other than the current state attorney, Robert Crow, whom was hell-bent on seeking the imposition of the death penalty upon Leopold and Loeb. Robert Crow, if nothing else, I guess, this was proof perhaps that Crow was consistent. And with the senseless murder of their son, the Franks family had been ruined. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Just a hideous, terrible situation. Life could and never would be the same for the Franks family. And for Mrs. Franks in particular, her life was ruined. She was forever tortured at the death and loss of her child. And who can blame her? But it must at the same time be, it cannot be denied that the two proud families of Leopold and Loeb, whose patriarchs had been highly educated and were men of acclaimed accomplishment, their wives, uh, civic-minded, they were very active in charitable causes. These two families, in the blink of an eye, they too had been just destroyed by the unforgivable actions of their sons, for whom, given their superior intellects, the families had every right to believe they held such promise. 
demonstrable proof of the ruin of the Leopold and Loeb's families may be validated by these indicators. Less than 30 days after Judge Kevrilly's sentencing verdict, Richard Loeb's stricken father would be dead of a heart attack within 30 days. And from the very moment Richard Loeb's father <laughs> absolutely stunned when he had learned that his son had confessed to the gruesome murder of Bobby Franks, he vowed never again to speak his son's name. You know, relying on ancient custom and archaic uh, Judaic law, his son literally from that moment on was dead to him. The, and the senior Loeb would make no effort to free his son from prosecution, nor would he interfere or, or be seen to be interfering in any way with the justice system's efforts to convict his son for the, the hideous crimes for which he had confessed and was guilty. And his son had offended all law, all decency, and rightfully he would pay and he should pay for those crimes. And justice demanded it. And Richard Loeb's father would not stop the process. There was nothing to be done. Literally nothing. Events would play themselves out without the Loeb family involvement. They would not interfere whatsoever. But only reluctantly would Loeb Sr. be convinced by elders who happened to be attorneys, but elders within the Loeb family whom shared his horror, understood the extent of his shame, but whom argued persuasively that providing a defense for his son was not interfering with the law. In fact, American law demanded a defense be made. And Loeb Sr. was finally prevailed upon to fund the legal defense effort only for the one single purpose of shielding the rest of his innocent extended family from the shame that would surely accrue to all living Loeb family members should Richard Loeb be hanged by the state of Illinois. And Loeb um, Sr. accepted this argument that innocent family members desperately needed to be spared this last obscenity, the last stain on the family name, and the shame to be attached to them due to the hanging of Richard. That, indecently, that indecency would last in perpetuity and was simply too much to ask, too much of a burden for the Loeb family to bear. That had to be avoided at all cost, if at all possible. And the Leopold family, too, experienced shame, humiliation, and was absolutely destroyed. His reputation ruined as well. Nathan Leopold's father, his business career was shattered, and they were forced to endure financial strains due to the significant costs of, of providing their son a legal defense at the trial. And their only interest as well, simply see their son avoid hanging. Beyond that, they didn't care. For the Leopold family, though, there was, there was more pain to endure. One of, one of Nathan Leopold's brothers had just announced his engagement to a woman from one of New York's most prominent families at the very moment of Nathan's arrest 
and confession. And he, he felt obligated then to offer his fiancée the opportunity to break off their engagement for fear the same sort of hereditary genetic mutation that had yielded his mutant bad seed brother Nathan might be carried in his own genetic makeup and as a result serve to pollute his offspring. And together with his wife, they would produce simply a monster child. How could he or they ever know that they would not? I mean, once again, I'm reminded of 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 Joseph Conrad's final words in the heart of darkness, the horror, the horror, such, you know, were the justifiable traumas that would haunt the lives of even the innocent. Nathan and Richard had destroyed not only the lives of Bobby Franks and his family, they had ruined the lives of their own extended family, whether or not they had a desire to do so or not. And despite their superior intellects, it is almost assuredly the case that neither of these two genius murders had ever thought for a single moment about the potential harm, the consequences, the potential fallout on their own families when they had agreed between them to this mutually assured destruction pact to commit the perfect crime. The, the Leopold family in Chicago, many, many were forced to sell their homes and move away to avoid further embarrassment and the harassment that, that followed in the wake of the trial and the verdict. Um, some members even felt compelled to change their legal names in an attempt to escape the shame, humiliation, the negative publicity that hounded them in the aftermath of the verdict. You know, all this done in hopes that they might prove able to resume the semblance of a normal life. Unfortunately, life for them would never again return to normal. I mean, that ship had sailed. And one can only imagine that had this crime in 1924 been committed a century later in the age of social media addiction, the crazies today would hound the innocent members of the stricken families in ways beyond our wildest imagination to oblivion. The hyenas awaiting only their next carcass on which to feed. Just awful. But returning to the defense, having been retained by um, both defendants' families to provide, provide a unified defense solely for the purposes of avoiding, of avoiding the death penalty, Clarence Darrow and his defense team had been working hard. And, and then they were under no false illusions. Popular opinion insisted that only and only imposition of the death penalty might afford a slight measure of justice in such an obscene crime and as was the heartless, thrill-seeking murder of a 14-year-old boy in the city of Chicago. Popular sentiment was easy to characterize. Two rich, spoiled boys with everything made available to them. All the advantages to be found in incredible wealth, every opportunity in life that wealth 
might provide them, had been provided. They had chauffeurs, cooks, nannies, governesses. They traveled to Europe. They were in private schools. And and still, this wasn't enough to satisfy these two murdering geniuses. These detestably ungrateful, spoiled brats, they found it fun. You know, they found it to be thrilling to you know that that there was going to be excitement in murdering a 14-year-old neighbor just for the hell of it just for kicks well even hanging was too good for these assholes this was the public sentiment newspaper by the way newspapers called for their deaths due process forget about it why bother there was no need death threats were issued they came in bundles one, one newspaper headline even read, Prosecutor Promises Murderers Will Hang. And this is before the trial. Robert Crow was, as state's attorney, he was chiming in, going on record even before the trial had started, just to make sure everybody knew what he believed. Thinking, why, why even bother waiting I'm going to make sure they die. I might as well let the public know. And the mood in Chicago could be summed up in two words. Kill them. I'd expect nothing less coming from the wicked city anyway. And if any case ever demanded the death penalty, this was it. Leopold and Loeb deserved to die for what they had done. And from, and from this readership, this citizenry, a jury would be selected. To present a case to this jury would be nothing short of suicide. You know, the Kenneth Arrow impossibility theorem states that there exist no procedures whatsoever that satisfy certain apparently quite reasonable assumptions concerning the autonomy of people and the rationality of their pre preferences. So, what that means is with a shared responsibility divided among 12 men, no one man would feel responsible for sentencing the boys to death and no man likely to fight the general will of the people. A Russo-like principle that the general will of the people can never be wrong. Rational argument would never, never overcome highly emotionally driven preferences. And, you know, Kenneth Arrow would win the Nobel Prize for, for providing such mathematical proof, but his theorem would not be constructed for nearly another three decades. But, but even without this mathematical proof, you know, Arrow's theorem, uh, that, might, that, that he developed in the 1950s, Clarence Darrow, in 1924, he knew in his heart and in his soul. He knew. In Chicago, in 1924, the decision to hang his clients would be an easy one and would be made. So if the case were going to be brought to, um, before a jury to be decided by 12 men in the city of Chicago, conviction was assured. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb would hang. So Darrow had to avoid a jury trial. Yet that was not, that was not his largest obstacle to keeping his clients from hanging. There was a technical legal difficulty that would have to be addressed. 
he'd face vigorous objection, but he had to overcome it. He just had to. And on this legal issue, there was no option but to prevail. For for Leopold and Loeb, whether they deserved Clarence Darrell or not, their parents had made the right decision when they had hired Darrell in an attempt to keep their sons from the gallows. For Clarence Darrell was the type of man Tolstoy had in mind when he had written the words, there is something in the human spirit that will survive and prevail. And there is a tiny and brilliant light burning in the heart of a man that will not go out, no matter how dark the world becomes. Yeah, that was Clarence Darrell. And on that note, we leave you. The legal, high-wire, tight-rope act that comes will come in our next episode. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you'll be back. Bye-bye. Back 
alone in my boat. I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high sea.